0: Well, at this time, i would like to go ahead and dismiss the kids for their special program. They can follow our team out, and I'm so thankful for the team as they minister. Um, it's not an easy task at what they do as they minister nightly, and they minister throughout the day. Uh, sometimes people ask us, what do, you, what do you do throughout the day? Actually, today I ended up at a coffee shop uh, this morning, uh, Starbucks, and while I was there, I was... Meeting with two people, I ended up meeting with three people. It was kind of neat because I got to meet a pastor from in town here, and um, and so uh, we're thankful for. As I as I, was, it was actually the first one was a pastor from across town, and um, and then and then there was then there was Brent, uh, my brother-in-law, and so some of you guys know Brent pretty well, and so you know how to pray for us even better, as uh, he's my brother-in-law, <laughs> and. Um, I'm so thankful again for Brent. And um, and we, so anyway, just we had a time today of doing that. But the truth is, is that um, the team is ministering each day and they're ministering in um, the sense of practicing for music and doing all kinds of advanced material things that are going on. So you've got so many different ones with different jobs and um, kind of running around and doing all kinds of stuff. Actually, even one of ours right now is doing testing. Um, for our own children who have the just the nat- natural academic testing that happens, every kid has to do that uh, growing growing up and so this is the timing of the year where one of our girls is doing that, so my secretary's been a wall on me because she 's uh, the one who is the standardized tester and um, so she 's doing that anyway we 're grateful to 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 minister though uh, these guys later this afternoon they went out. Administered in the community, they just kind of invited people to the Cola War. They're actually seeking to to go out and about and let people know, even as even the public school systems, as as Ben this morning was talking to different um, principals uh, within the area too, and just letting them know about this community event. And and we'd love to to just to see what God could do through it all. You never know, and so you always just kind of invite, and we kind of see what God's going to do. But take our Bibles this evening and go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter fourteen. As you turn there. I will tell you of a need in our ministry that I haven't said yet this this week, and uh, it's been a, really an interesting journey with us as, as God has allowed us to, to do this style of ministry since, in one sense, since the, since 98, and, um, but then in the other sense is that we really launched out from underneath a guy, a guy named Steve Pettit. We launched out from him in the fall of 07 and um, began doing this style of ministry that he had done for about 30 years and really just as a... Uh, just a great expositor of the word and preacher of the word. Um, as this happened, we, it's interesting, we moved into a trailer. And when you think about that, we went from a house to a fifth wheel trailer. And, uh, and we, we, at that point in time, there was no second room in the trailer. It was just a living room. I think back in the day, I think Pete, sometimes you had probably gone over to that trailer and, and we'd always tell people, you know, uh, while Tommy was in his little pack and play bed thing in the living room, we'd say, just ignore him and he' and he'd be he had a little pacifier and he you know and then he'd kind of go back down and eventually fall asleep, even though with us talking there, but it was his room. And then eventually we ended up with three kids. In that trailer, and we realized we need to desperately do something. And so Will Galkin bought a, a larger trailer, and then he was going to sell his. And so for us, that was a huge step, and we were so thankful to move into to Will's old trailer, if that makes sense. At that point, our kids could have some some bed, have a bedroom, and um, but even in that point, two of our kids got beds, and then one of them was kind of on the uh, on the floor. But they were all little; no one really kind of thought much about it, you know, at the time, and. And uh, and then eventually we ended up with five kids, and um, and with five, my oldest son is like he's it's it's amazing because it's like his feet are bigger than mine now, and he's starting to kind of to grow up pretty fast, and, and he grew out of the couch because it's like an RV style of couch, and so he's too big for it, and then moved back into a bed. We kind of shifted kids around, but there were two on the floor, one on the couch, and um, and we just kept praying for the last uh, I don't know about four years, pretty consistently. Lord, we 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 want to pray. Uh, that you would supply for us a larger trailer. Now, there's not that many they make that are bigger, and we knew the expense of them are too, too much just to just kind of go out that way. And then a friend of ours went from um, this style of ministry to, to be the dean of a seminary. And so when that happened, um, he called us up and said, would you guys consider buying my trailer? And we had already seen this trailer, which is real interesting. We said, if we ever were to build a trailer, I think we'd build one like this. And um, which is so funny that we would end up in this trailer. And so anyways, this all happened for us. We, um, the, last, the last couple of months is it kind of prepared for it. Steve Pettit, who's on our board, he said this. He said, Jeremy, he said, I think you guys should raise some money. I think you should need, find 50 people to give you 1000 bucks apiece. piece." And help offset the cost. You'll sell the other one. You'll be able to get into this one. It's a used trailer, uh, but it's a it's a nice used trailer. It's it's like 53, 56 feet, something like that. So it's the one that we have out there right now. And just a couple of weeks ago, we moved into it, and um, and it's been an amazing thing for us because for the first time, um, our all of our kids have beds. Like that's awesome. You know, we went from seven people. In about 300 square feet of movable space, uh, to now I think it's close to 500 square feet, and it's like it's it's for us it's massive, and um, and uh, we're so grateful. We have a full size fridge. We're like, wow, you know, before we had this little tiny kind of like little thing. People would say, hey, can we give you extra stuff? And we're like, no, we can't do anything with it. It won't fit in that little thing, and um, and so just to kind of see how the Lord has been kind in that sense too. So we've kind of transitioned into it. And um, and honestly, I, when Steve said you should raise some money for this, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I'm not into raising money, you know. And the local churches give weekly, and that's just kind of where we are at this point. And but then I woke up one morning. So it's probably honestly about a year later. And I was telling this to Brent today. I was like, you know, I just I came to this conclusion. Wait a second, um, why am I why am I struggling with this? Um, if the church has a building need, what do you do? You let people know and you pray about it and you try to raise some funds for it. If if you're gonna purchase a uh, a van in your church, or if you're gonna do something with missions, or whatever it may be, the truth is a radio ministry uh, requires funds. And um, and then I'm thinking, wait a second, I, it's it's okay. Not like any, everybody's gonna give, and I don't always ask for money. And we're not we're not televangelists. We're not preaching a false gospel. <laughs> so so sure, why not? And so I I, I threw it out there. And within the first couple of weeks, it's amazing how God supplied so much of this money for it. And so now it's been about two months, and the last couple weeks I haven't said even anything about it on social media. And that's really all we've we've promoted. We've said something in social media, uh, just on Facebook. Honestly, it's not even we haven't even really pushed it out there. And um, and we've also told the local churches that we're in. But it's interesting how the Lord has supplied out of the fifty thousand, almost thirty thousand, in the last couple of months. And so we're just we're 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 thankful, we're grateful for God's timing. And um, so we say this, we call it the Road Warrior Fund. I don't know if you realize, this. some of you realize this because I realize that. You know, with uh, life action and stuff being right around here too, and and yet the nature of being on the road, it costs money, a lot of money, and just to function on the road. And I tell people, I could probably be the youth pastor at my home church and, and, and probably make more money than what I'm doing, um, but it's amazing how we're seeing souls saved and we're thankful God supplies all the needs. I mean, everything, it's like it really is an amazing thing. And so if you if this, if you could pray for us for a couple of things, one would be is we have about 20 grand still left that we're trying to seek to raise with that and trying to really seek it to be debt-free. We've been debt free for for a while now. We're thankful again for how God again has supplied those needs. But the other side of it too is is I need to sell the other trailer because that money goes into, into that one too. So anyway, that's for sale, and that's been for sale for a little bit now, and we're just thankful again for what God's doing. So those are two specific prayer requests as we have on on the road. And uh, and again, we're so thankful for even this week as you guys have ministered to many of you have already even given and stuff towards, towards the ministry. And uh, we're thankful. Sometimes people say, Jeremy, are you like a missionary? And I was like, well, sort of. But the way we function is is a little bit different. We're not mission supported from um, from churches. I'm uh, not on someone's wall probably as a missionary. But what happens is week to week in local churches, that's how God supplies the needs. So it's real really exciting to see through the years how the Lord has allowed all these different teams really to kind of function the same kind of way. And so we're we we always look back. I was talking to coffees not too long ago, and we we're just amazed at just how God uh, directs our paths and and saves people. He He is in the saving business, and we're grateful for that. Luke 14 is where we are. I hope this passage has been a powerful thing to you. We started this on Sunday morning, and then Sunday evening, and last night, and tonight as we conclude this, and then tomorrow night, a a special gospel emphasis, very specific that way, and a concert, and so I want to invite you back. But here, let's look at this passage of Scripture again. It's verse 25. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions for peace. So therefore... "'Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but the salt has lost its taste. How shall it be seasoned? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.'" As we consider this passage of Scripture, we've, we've, we've looked back at this earlier and we realize this is massive crowds. If it was just crowds, that would be a lot of people, but this is great crowds. A lot of people, they're, they're there following Jesus in a casual way because, I mean, who can preach like Jesus and who can do miracles like Jesus? So the reality is that he's drawing a lot of people. This is towards the end of his ministry before he goes to the cross, you could say. And as he has all these people, they're there, they're followers, but they're not real followers. Jesus turns to that great crowd and, he's, and he calls them to come to him. Actually, it's amazing because he says, if anyone comes to me. Now, the truth is, as he's saying this, if you don't come to Jesus, the reality is you will not make it to heaven. Jesus himself is, is calling people to actually come to a saving knowledge of the Messiah. He's not saying, hey, come out and hang out with me a little bit. He's, he's calling people to actually repent, to turn from their sins to Christ. Now, if you look at this closely, though, as we've looked at this, he's not going around saying, everybody, just go hate everybody. I mean, that's, that's how you become my follower. But we actually found, remember the, the verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, as we came to conclusion, that here's Matthew 10, verse 37, that, that talks about loving father or mother more than me, or, and if you do that, you're not worthy of me. Jesus is using what's called a Hebraism. He's basically taking something within their culture as he's saying this to use this as a comparison, as an extreme. The reality is he's saying this, you ought to so love me supremely that any other love in comparison is like hatred. And you're not supposed to hate people. You're supposed to even love your enemies. So here's, here's God calling us to a supreme love. Really, you could say this. He was calling us to say, forsake all idols of human relationships for the one true God. So we came to this conclusion, what does it mean to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? You could say this, number one, on on Sunday morning, a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. As we looked at this even further, though, remember, as we, we looked at this whole idea of bearing the cross, in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we looked at this and realized, wait a second, what is he calling us here to? And we really came to the conclusion of this, that a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who surrenders to Christ fully. It's not partial surrender. He's actually calling you to come and die. It's not about your life, it's all about his life. He even taught us about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. If it remains alone, then nothing happens. But when it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And then he turned to his own disciples and, and and said, If you love your life and cling to it, you lose it. So Jesus is teaching us here what it means to actually bear the cross. We actually looked at that in Luke twenty three, remember? And cross bearing is a sign of total submission to the higher authority. It's a public display of humiliation. It is a willingness to die to self and to follow Christ completely. As we concluded that evening, we realized this, that Jesus wasn't just calling you to sort of come to him, but he's calling you to come after him. And the truth is even about that in Luke chapter 9, we realize that he's calling people to take up their cross daily and follow him. Really, you could say surrender is not just a one-time thing. It's a constant state for the true believer. As I think about this, I like as one author put it, about this whole idea of a living sacrifice, here's what he said. He said, the truth is about a living sacrifice is this, the problem is that the living sacrifice wants to keep climbing off the altar. But what do we do as true believers? We keep climbing back on on purpose and we fully surrender and so that was what he was calling us to then last night we we couldn't get away from the fact of the idea of counting the cost so a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who counts the cost carefully they think they use their brain we looked at the two different illustrations the emotional decisions for Christ they're just shameful they don't last emotions come and go and so it was much more than that we looked at the ideas this whole idea of going to war even that wise decisions are humble they're thoughtful they're serious As we looked at the rich man, the rich young ruler, we realized in Luke 18 what it meant to sell all. And even the idea there is is in in chapter 19 of how Zacchaeus shows us the example of just joyfully following Christ and willing to, to get rid of it all in a sense for Jesus and yet as you looked at this, we realized this is all or nothing. And we, we came to the conclusion last night as we looked closely. It's interesting because in verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's all or nothing. It's not try Jesus. Jesus isn't over there begging people, please, please, I need you so bad because I can't live without you. No, no, he surely can. And the reality is he's calling every person to complete surrender to him to this point where they consider the cost. He's not just saying, hey, just kind of pray this prayer. No, no, not at all. He's actually, he's actually kind of steering you away from that idea to say, listen, before you ever jump into this, you better seriously consider the choices that you make and what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. I wonder, if do we do this? even in our own gospel preaching or gospel ministry to people. And as we look at this, we realize that word forsaking, there the idea is a constant forsaking of everything that we have. Last night, we concluded with this. The reality is, as believers, we are owners of nothing, but we are stewards of everything. And When we live this way, can I just tell you this? When When you have a person who truly who truly surrenders fully, who loves Christ supremely. They've forsaken the idols for Jesus. They've repented. This is what's going on here. And, they, and they've actually considered the cost carefully, and they live this way, constantly forsaking all they have. Can I tell you what, that, what happens? Is that person makes a serious impact in our world. And really, that's what Jesus commends. Because tonight, as we look at this, Jesus says, Salt is good. What's that supposed to mean, honestly, in our world today? Let's pray and ask God's help, okay? Father, we thank you so much again for all that you do. I pray your blessing upon the message and the word tonight. Again, those who are not in Christ, I pray that tonight they would become true, genuine salt. They would truly be someone born from God, that they would be a person as believers in this room tonight, that they would be people and all of us here that would make an impact constantly. Dear God, work in us. And we know this, God. That when you work in us, it's amazing how you then work through us. So God, use your word tonight to stir us to greater obedience to, for, for you and to love you even greater. Father, thank you for who you are and um, do a work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. As we look at this closely, Jesus, he commends the true believers. He says they're like salt and salt. Is good. Now, when we say this, I, I want to say this because as you look at this passage in the scriptures in front of you, it may be this, and I'm gonna say something tonight that right from the beginning might sound like heresy, okay? But stay stay with me. Don't get up and leave, okay? I'm gonna say something, and I don't have to clarify what I mean by this, okay? But here's here's what it is: not everything in the Bible is inspired. No, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, okay, don't leave. Okay, here's what I mean by that, okay. I mean like the chapter numbers are not in the originals, okay? I mean the verse numbers are not there. The chapter headings are not there, okay? So I'm just telling you that because so often you come to this end of verse 33 verse 33. And then I sometimes I see paragraph symbols that they put in there that's not in the original. Uh, sometimes there's a heading right now, like a new heading in my Bible in front of me that I see, which is nice, but it's almost like it's showing you that it's disjointed. But actually within the original, you, you really would read it this way, "'Therefore, therefore salt is good.'" So Jesus within the messages he's preaching to all these people, he, yes, he's going after the people to say, listen, you humble yourself and you repent and you love Christ supremely and you surrender fully and you consider the cost and what it means to follow Jesus on a consistent basis. It begins all at salvation, but it never stops there. And then the truth is, if this really happens in a person's life, what's going on? That person is going to make an impact constantly. That's our point tonight. Number four in this series, you could say. A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who makes an impact constantly. They're like salt. And salt is good. Now, again, what is that supposed to mean, though? I mean, salt is good. uh, You know, okay, Jeremy, sure, salt's good. I mean, I guess. I mean, what's that supposed to even mean? So let me give you some, some, some hints towards this as we look into this passage of Scripture. But one of the things would be this, is you've got to consider their day and age. What did it mean to have salt and to use salt even in their own world? Well, obviously, even within this passage of Scripture, if the salt has lost its taste. So there's an element of flavor. How will the saltness be restored? How will it be seasoned again? As we look at this, you could say this, true Christians who follow Christ, they flavor a sinful world with good taste. They're like salt. Now, when you think about this for a minute, flavoring a sinful world with good taste. Consider our world for just a moment and what it's like, and then consider a world without any flavor. Could you imagine a world with no flavor? I mean, I mean that's like that's like mashed potatoes, you know, and 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 like nothing at all on it, no gravy. No salt or pepper, no seasoning at all. And you're going, like, thank you. You know what I mean? like, uh, It just, it's, ugh. You know what I love? How many of you like chips and salsa? How many of you like that? Okay, yeah. You know, actually, I like the, the uh, what, La Hacienda around here? It's around here, too. It's a pretty good one. Um, but I think about chips and salsa. But the truth is, we, I feel like when we go different places, and sometimes we have chips and salsa, sometimes, we, even in the Mexican restaurants, you might go and you you taste the chip, and you go, oh, like it, like it needs... Some salt. Actually, my kids have gotten such a habit of this. My kids will say, Dad, can I, can I, can I do it? And what they'll do is they'll reach for it on the table and they'll grab the salt and they'll start sal- salting the, the chips, you know, to give them some flavor even. Sometimes even you, you taste the people's salsa and you go, hmm, you know, what's that all about? You know, let's add a little bit of salt to that to give it a little bit of flavor even to the salsa. When I think about this, this is a world it, it, we're talking about where believers, they flavor the sinful world with good taste. My mind thinks about, so often in the summer times, we like to, to grill when we get an opportunity to, and we try grilling everything. We even grill pizza sometimes. You know, it's kind of kind of fun. But I think about one of the things is that we do is a lot of times my wife will will get corn and she'll shuck the corn, and and sure enough, I'll begin kind of grilling the corn, and uh, there I'll just straight on the grill, and and she has like she puts like I think we put we use butter, we use um, olive oil. I think it's on there some sea salt and stuff too. And man, I'm telling you, when it's all said and done. And that's things. And that's it's really kind of cooked. And then you you might even add a little bit of butter, maybe some salt and pepper. Even with that, I mean, the truth is, you bite into that thing, and it's like a little bit of heaven in your mouth. You know what I'm saying? It just tastes so good. Here's the point: real Christians who follow Christ, they so flavor their world with good taste. Now, let me ask you this. Is your marriage a better marriage because you're in it? Because Christ is in you, and Christ is so flavoring you that you flavor your marriage. I mean, you consider your family. I would ask this, is your family a better family because you're in it? because Christ is so flavoring you and transforming you and changing you that you get this flavor of Christ within the family and then you move to a lost world let's even say where now you're at work and what happens at work people are going ah, man they don't pay me enough and you know, and why are you working I mean, sometimes people get mad at you for smiling at work i mean you know what's what's your problem why are you so happy or something you know it's almost like that's a, that's that's bad you know and and why are you working so hard or something too you're making the rest of us look bad you know what are you talking about you know it's the, the truth is but the people who, who, who really are believers, what do they do? They seek to make an impact at their work. They seek to, to, to actually flavor that world with good taste. Is this you? When I think about even our own world this way, I, I'm from South Carolina, and a number of uh, summers ago, there was a horrible shooting in a church on a Wednesday evening in Charleston, South Carolina. A kid came in, he sat through a a prayer meeting and waited for the right time and then began to open fire, killing many different church members, including the pastor. Actually, when that all happened, it was such a shocker. He he fled, they caught him, they put him before a judge. There were people that were there uh, for that time before the trial would ever begin, but just as he's standing before the judge, and they had people from that church and people from, who are related to people within the church. And I remember them showing this on television. I realized this. They're not going to show this again. It was one of those things because it was too much of Jesus, I think. But, but here they are. They showed this on national television, and you had families who are saying to the kid, you killed my mom, or you killed my pastor. And you know what? God loves you, and you need to repent, and we love you, and we're calling you to Jesus. Repent and trust in Christ. And you're thinking, what? I mean, that's not normal. I think of this, and my heart races back to the 50s. Now, I wasn't born in the 50s, okay? And, and so, but the truth is, I know the story of, 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 of Nate Saint and, and uh, Jim Elliott, and you guys know the story. And what's so amazing to me there is what happens. They spear these men. And as they spear them, what does Elizabeth Elliot do? Elizabeth Elliot, she, she in turn goes and lives among the tribe and with her own kids. And church. she could do this as a woman. And yet the truth is, is so many of them came to know Christ through the testimony. She loved people that hated them and killed her own husband. That is radical. That is God-like. That's God-like forgiveness and God-like love. Because it's not normal for us to forgive, is it? Yet you see this and go, this is radical stuff here because true believers who follow Christ, they flavor a sinful world with good taste. But that's not the only thing. Actually, salt within the culture was also used as a preservative. When you consider it this way, you could say this number two tonight is this. True believers who follow Christ are actually agents of preservation in a sinful world. I mean, you, 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 could you imagine a world without any... Preservation. That would change everything. Could you imagine a world without any refrigeration? That would change everything, too, huh? I mean, what would you do with your milk? Well, you better drink it. You know what I mean? Especially in the summer, you be, you know, it's like you buy it, drink it right away. I mean, you kill your deer; that's sweet, you know. But you better eat it pretty fast because what are you going to do without that? Because you don't have the the deep freezer to put it in there. I mean, what do what are you going to do? So so in their culture, and even still in our modern day, guess what? Sometimes. People will use salt as a preservative for even meats and those things, too. Some of you have done maybe the same thing where you've cut maybe a a grapefruit, eaten half the grapefruit, and you want to kind of preserve it even more. So you might sprinkle a little bit of salt on it, maybe even wrap it up and put it in the fridge, too. But you can imagine a world without any refrigeration, what would happen to everything quickly, it would spoil fast. Think of the hot summer days in South Bend or Mishawaka. I mean, think about that for a minute. Okay, so it hits the 90s and maybe hundreds where it gets real hot, but you, or awesome because you got to go on a vacation. So you left and didn't realize that you lost power the day you left. And you were gone for a week and you came back. And then you came into the house, you open up the door and went, whoa, like it's hot. It's horrible in here. Man, we must have lost power. And then you go over to the fridge and you open it up and there was no power in the fridge all week. And as you open it up, you go, oh, oh, gross. And the smell, you go even to the, the garage and maybe you got the, the deep freezer. And so sure enough, you, you, you start to open, before you open it, you're like, whoa, what's the deal? It's like, something's dead or something. There's like blood like trail. And then you open it up and you realize it's the meats and all that's spoiled and the moment you open it up, even the neighbors call 911 and say somebody's dead in the community. You know, they could smell something. I mean, the truth is it spoils. And yet when you consider a believer, could you imagine in a moment what what if something like the rapture did occur? Believers all wiped out or taken away in one shot. Could you imagine, what, how would America vote on social issues? There would be no issues anymore, huh? There's nothing holding anything back. You can, could you imagine just pulling and taking every Christian out? I mean, you think of cultures where, where the gospel is just really not there, and what's that culture like and how dark it is and how it spoils so quickly? And yet Here's a believer who's, who's meant as an agent of preservation. I want to show you this in the greater context because what you do is see this. You see the greatest disciple maker of all, and that's Jesus. Go back to chapter 13 for a minute and notice, notice verse 1. In chapter 13, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this was an awful thing that had happened. And they had died this way, and Pilate had mingled again their blood with the sacrifices. Verse 2, and he answered them, "'Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in, in this way?' And he says, "'No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish.'" Jesus, the greatest disciple maker, is calling people to repent. He's actually becoming preservative. He is the preservative in our world because if a person doesn't repent and there's no salvation and you wipe that all out of our culture, man, we're talking about a spiraling down so quickly of a stench. You think of even the flood back in the day. But you go further, look at verse, look at verse 4. Or those 18 uh, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is calling people to repent or perish. Actually, it's interesting as you see even later, he calls him and says, strive to enter into the stray gate. He's not saying work for your salvation, but he's saying you ought to make sure so much that you that you don't miss the whole idea of true salvation that's given through the Messiah. Make sure you put forth every effort not to miss it. You go to chapter 14 and look at verse 1. And one Sabbath. He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. Pharisees. Hmm. Watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had the dropsy. What's that? It's some form of excess fluid. Maybe you could say a cancerous tumor. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Okay, they don't want to look bad, religious hypocrites, so, Jesus is asking, them, and they, so instead of saying something that might incriminate them, let's just not say anything. Okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay, that's pretty dumb. Okay, but that's them. Okay, they're they're just like, they're not going to answer. They don't want to be incriminated. So Jesus goes on. So then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a, a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. He's saying, don't you get it? You guys are so concerned about your Sabbath. And the idea of them is they were adding rules to the Sabbath, those laws that were not scriptural at all. And so they were con- con- concerned more about that. And sure enough, then they would even rescue their own animal. But here's a person who needed help, and they, wouldn't, they didn't care about that person and he's saying, don't you understand your your morals and ethics are so switched and so upside down? When I think of this, I think again, a number of summers ago, what happened? Here's this guy that kills like Leo the lion of some sort. Remember he, this guy? And then when he, he did this on a safari, he, he had to go into hiding. I mean, literally for his life because people were, he had death threats. It was the same summer when all the Planned Parenthood videos came out. And here are all the little baby parts and hands and you saw any bit of that how tragic it was where was the outcry there I mean, you look at this and go, "Man, here's our world. It's so mixed up and so messed up." And yet, here's Jesus teaching them the same thing. You are placing your man-made laws above God's laws, and you care more about yourself than you do about people. Actually, He goes into this whole idea of the wedding feast, and and, and then He encourages them, "Don't take the highest seats." Why is He saying this to the Pharisees? The Pharisees have a major problem. Here's what it is: it's a problem called pride. It's the truth is that all of us have the same kind of problem, but the Pharisees were so arrogant and so proud. They didn't want to humble themselves in any form of repentance. They thought they were okay. They knew the way. Don't even talk to me about these things. Jesus is teaching them humility, actually tells them, don't go and try to choose the best seats because that's what they would do. They would throw a party for the whole purpose that they would get higher, they would get to the higher seats, and he says, no, no, when you go to a party, you should always take the lower seats, therefore then you could be exalted, but you guys are so proud. So what does he say? Look at verse 11, or verse 13, no, it's verse 11. For therefore, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what he's teaching them? You Pharisees, if you don't humble yourselves, you will never make it to heaven. The only way is through humility and faith and repentance in Christ, turning to Christ and him alone, not yourselves. It's not your own works that you do. And all they cared about were their own works. Let me just tell you how good I am. That's that's their life. And yet they needed to see and understand, so Jesus is rebuking them on purpose. You go a little bit further, he actually then talks about this dinner and inviting the people to a dinner, and he says, listen, don't invite people that, that can repay you, but in verse, in verse 13 he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because you cannot repay, they cannot repay you, and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, how do you think the Pharisees are hearing this one? They're feeling conviction. And so, what do you do with conviction? You kind of try to change the subject. Look at this. Verse, verse 15 said, when one of those who heard, who those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, uh, uh, Blessed is every man, everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, if you're talking about a heavenly banquet, I mean, hey, we're all gonna be there. Let's make a toast to ourselves. Actually, Jesus goes on and tells them a story, and then he says in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper, of my banquet. You will not make it unless you humble yourself. This is God's kindness, calling even the Pharisee to real repentance and faith in the Messiah, the religious hypocrite. And actually, can I tell you, the hardest people to reach are religious people. I'm okay. I go to church. Well, that's nice, but did you know that going to church doesn't wash away your sins? And people, well, I've gone forward in a service. Well, that's nice too, but that doesn't somehow wash away your sins. I've been baptized. You know, they'll say, Well, that's that's nice, but going underwater in front of people doesn't wash away the inward sin problem. I mean, the reality is this is why you need Jesus, this is why you need Messiah, because there's no other way other than Christ. So as Christ is actually teaching this, even to the Pharisees, it's interesting because then we go into the passage where we are of verse 25 to verse 35, and we realize this is a great call to real authentic repentance and faith in the Messiah. To become a true disciple of Jesus is to become a real Christian. Did you know that? Could you imagine a person saying this to you? Hey, Jeremy. I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. Well, then you're not a Christian. True Christians follow Christ. Phony Christians claim the name, but don't follow Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and he has this in his hand, and no one can pluck you out of his hand. John 10. This is amazing to me because he's, he's really going after the Pharisees, but what you have to see is look at chapter 15, even this context even more, because here he is as preservative. It says in verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble. They complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I mean, hello. If he were of God, he would be coming to my house. We're the religious crowd. I mean, come on. This is no Messiah. Look who he hangs out with. But then Jesus teaches them, actually, in verse, verse 3. So he told them a parable. He says, "'What man of you, having a hundred sheep, "'if he had lost one of them, "'does not leave the ninety-nine in an open country "'and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? "'And when he has found it, "'he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. "'And when he comes home, "'he calls together his friends and neighbors, "'saying to them, "'Rejoice with me, "'for I have found my sheep which was lost.' Just so I tell you, there, is, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. Are you catching this? This is, this is sarcasm. There's joy in heaven over a sinner that repents, but the sinner who doesn't repent, guess what? There's no joy there. It doesn't make heaven happy because the person doesn't make it to heaven, and yet over the 99 just persons who need no repentance, this is the Pharisees. There's no joy in heaven for them. When you think about this, there's joy in heaven for that? Yeah, now wait a second. Notice verse, notice verse 8, or what woman, that really made them mad for him to say that actually to them. It's like, you're, here's these men, here's, you're calling me a woman? They actually detested women, treated them like, like some form of property. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, this shows you this woman is destitute. She's very, very poor. Because the truth is, this is like a day's wage, and it's, it's radical for her. And she, she's looking for the one silver coin that she's lost, and she's been to sweep. What is she, she's probably sweeping the dirt as, she, as she's looking for this. And when she has found it, what does she do? She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you realize what chapter fifteen is all about? You could say this: chapter fifteen, the theme is this. What makes God happy? What makes heaven happy? When a sinner repents. What makes you happy? Uh, hunting. Really. Oh my work! What really? What really makes you happy? Because it should be the same thing that makes God happy. In other words, when souls, people are saved, this this so excites heaven. And then look at what about us? I mean, I wonder, are we, are we like God at all? Do we really have a heartbeat for, for people and the lost? Jesus seeking and going to make disciples of all nations. He's, he's radically, humbly calling people to repentance and faith. I mean, it's amazing how He's being used. He even shows us the picture of God's love. Actually, it's interesting because in verse 11... We read about the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you could call it the prodigal sons, honestly. Because they're both prodigals. One you could say is an active rebel. The other one's a passive rebel. Actually, this, is a, this shows each one of us actually in the story here because we're both, we're prone to it. Some, some of us are prone to just active rebelling and some of us are, are prone to passive rebelling. We, we could put on the facade and, and yet, but in our heart, we're not there. And you look at this closely. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of portion that is coming to me. If if you think that's sort of offensive, let me explain it even more. No kid in that culture got the inheritance until dad died. So what is the kid saying? Hey, dad, drop dead. I want my money now. I mean everybody here in this would all want I mean the tr- the truth is, is is every every normal person would have said take the kid out and in their culture and take him to the streets and stone him. I mean the kid deserves to die for so shaming his father. He's calling his dad to drop dead. I mean everything about this is so shocking to those who would hear this, but it's interesting because as this happens, it says, it says in verse in verse twelve that he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to one of the, the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. That's not really good for a Jewish kid. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He just wanted the carob pods. He just wanted the pig food, and no one gave him anything. He is so hungry. He is so destitute. And, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, that's real repentance. He's not saying, Dad, I just kind of did you wrong. Dad, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you. This is what he's going to say to his dad. He says, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He said, he said, treat me as one of your hired servants. So this is what he's thinking. So what does he do? In verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What? Do you know what the Pharisees are doing when they hear this story? They're going, What? I mean, the kid should die. What is the father doing? What, a, what an idiot of a father. Actually, why would he do this? I mean, that kid has so shamed him. Actually, the idea of even running, would, his legs would be showing in that culture. It was shameful. Everything about this, what are you talking about? Now, here's what the father knew. The father had been looking. He had been waiting. He had been watching. And yet, the nature of this is so amazing because if the father doesn't get to the kid before the townspeople will The townspeople will kill that kid. But the father, he loves his kid. He runs to him. He he falls upon his neck. He he kisses him. He he embraces him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Hey, bring quickly the best robe and and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet. Because he had no shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate and his older son was in the field and as he came and he drew near to the house he heard music and dancing whoa what's the festivities what's going on what's the party and verse 26 and he called one of the servants and asked of these he asked what these things meant And he said to him, well, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he had received him back safe and sound. And he was so happy. Yay! My brother's back. Actually, that's not what it says. Verse 28, but he was angry and he refused to go in. I will not go in his father came out and entreated him are are you seeing the very love of god this is this is a picture of god's love even to the religious Pharisee, the hypocrite, because that's who the older brother, brother is. He's just a Pharisee in the story. The other, the prodigal one that you see that just is, is out in people's faces, he's the sinner. He's the, he's, the, he's the people that they're going, look at that. I mean, look at that guy. But here's the, here they are as religious hypocrites, and they're seeing this, and they're totally in agreement with the older brother. I'm not going in. And, and what's he doing? And so what does God in his kindness do? The father comes out and entreats him. You know what? God loves to save even the religious hypocrites. Isn't he kind? Isn't he loving? I, I look at this and I'm amazed, at this. but here's what happens. So he entreats him, but he answered his father and he said, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Liar! And then, as he keeps talking, he says this: "I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be that I might celebrate with my friends. You never threw me a party." Oh, wah, oh, wah, oh, wah. It's not. He's not even done. But when this your son of yours ca- ca- came, wait a second. He can't even say his brother's name. I mean, this your son. He comes back, who has devoured your p- property with prostitutes and killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that, I, that is mine is yours. Now, don't, don't read too far into the story because within the story, though, the whole point was the, the divided living, the, the rest of the father's inheritance, it's, it's that kid's. It has nothing to do that the Pharisee is going to naturally make it to heaven. That has nothing to do with that. Just within the story. Don't you get it? This stuff is yours. What What are you complaining about? And then he says in verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What makes heaven happy? What makes God happy when sinners repent? Can I just tell you this? This should be the same thing that makes every true believer so happy and we long to see this. And I wonder how many religious hypocrites are in this room because when it comes to lost souls, we just don't get it. We just kind of, well, I don't know what to say, somebody else will. Well, they might not be one of the elect. I mean, it's amazing how many kind of things that you can kind of excuse for not witnessing to people. It's, you know, and, and uh, they might get really mad at me. Wait a second, aren't you glad someone loved you enough to witness to you? And here's Jesus who, who goes out and about seeking to reach people, calling people to repentance. I mean, the reality is get, that's what we're supposed to do as believers. We are supposed to call people to repentance. Jesus calls them and he uses people to reach people. That's how he's ordained it in our world. So what should we as believers be? We should be about what makes God happy, and it should be about something that makes us happy. Let's reach people. Let's be the agent of preservation in a lost and dying world. But you look at this closely, and you begin to see this, and you go back to the passage where we started in verse 34, salt is good... This is chapter 14, verse 34, salt is good. Jesus is actually commending true believers who follow Christ. They just are, are, are agents of preservation. They are, they are actually, they, they are people who, who seek to flavor a sinful world with good taste. I mean, we, we want to better our world as believers. and We can't do this alone. It's by the grace of God. But as I consider this, even too, the truth is, is salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltness be restored? Now, wait a second. Salt losing its taste? Actually, salt doesn't lose its taste. Did you know that? And that's what makes salt, salt. It doesn't lose its preservative. And yet if it does, it shows itself to be phony salt. There was salt within their culture at times where they would gather from the Dead Sea and it would be an improper mixture. It wasn't purified correctly. And the reality is what would happen? There would be a phoniness. It was called gypsum. It's the phony salt. It's the stuff that would lose its flavor. The phony would lose the flavor, but the real deal would never lose its flavor. You really look at this and you could say, in one sense, there's an element of purity among true salt, and yet I think as true believers, we could see this even within the passage, and the nature of us as true believers, we desire more purity, we desire to be, to be more like the Lord, we desire for God to purify us and to use us. But I would also say this, Jesus is saying this, true salt is useful, but bad salt or phony salt is useless. Jesus is simply saying this I am not interested in the phony. I'm looking for the real deal. If you're here tonight and there's never been a time in your life where you've really repented and trusted in the Messiah and him alone, think about this. You add, if you're trying to add to the Messiah by doing your good works and that somehow, you know, you believe in Jesus, but you got to add to it. Wait a second. What are you saying about to God? You're saying, God, your Messiah and your gift for me was not good enough. I must therefore add to it somehow to earn my way to heaven. No, no, no. It is by grace. It's the only way. If you're taken away from it in some form or fashion, the truth is, the reality is is you're saying, again, your sacrifice wasn't good enough, but Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection was good enough. And the reality is you should repent and trust in the Messiah and him alone. If you've not done that, then God in his kindness has you here for a purpose that you could repent and trust in Jesus and him alone. Become true salt. And as he's calling people to himself, here's what's amazing. He says this. He says, if, if again, there is, it's salt has lost its flavor, what happens? It's no use. In verse 35, it is of no use either for the soil. Don't put it on the soil. It'll ruin that. Don't put it on the manure pile. It'll ruin the fertilizer even there. I mean, don't even... So what do you do? It's thrown away. It's it's just cast among the, the streets, you could say, to be trampled on. It's absolutely good for nothing. Phony salt is good for nothing. He's calling people to authentic faith. But even in this, as he says this, he finishes off and he says this. He who has ears to hear let him hear. What does that mean? Do do you realize, this is kind of funny, okay, because there are preachers in this room. Do you not realize that we see a lot more than you think we see? Like, like, I'm serious. I I say this because I can see you. Did did you know that? I mean, because sometimes we've been in services and I thought people, they don't think that I can see them. And, um, and there are times where I'm, I've been in a service before, and we're, like, sitting somewhere, and, and uh, it was my wife and I, and, and I remember hearing, tick, 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 and we're like, what is that noise? And then we look over, and we see this, this lady clipping her nails on the ground, you know, tick, 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 and we're like, sick, like, what, what is she doing? Sometimes people are like in a service and you see them knitting or something like this and you're like, what, what are you doing? I mean, I've had people say something like this to me. Okay, here's a person who's, who's who slept from the very moment of the sermon beginning to the very end and they've come to me. Now, this wasn't in your church, okay, just so you know, but, I, but I've been, and then they're in the lobby and they shake my hand and they say this. They say, oh, Jeremy, that was one of the greatest messages I think I've ever heard. I'm thinking, I say, praise the Lord. But I'm thinking, I'm, la- I'm like, that person was sleeping the whole time. Loser, you know, liar. I mean, come on, seriously, like, I see this. Like, it's like, you know, and what's amazing, I mean, again, been in services, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, it- it's like not everybody hears the message. Some people are like <laughs> against it. Within a year ago, I had someone actually approach me. After a message and said, if you can't say what you're going to say in 30 minutes, you need to sit down and shut up. And I laughed. I went, (laughs) you're serious. And they were. Now, the reason I was laughing was because the two people that were before me, here's one guy, just in tears, and he's talking about what God's doing in his life and how God's using the messages in his life. And here's another guy who's saying the kind of same thing. And then here's this guy, if you can't say what you're going to say in 30 minutes, then you better sit down and shut up. And actually, that night, I was pretty short. I was only 45. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm like, wow, okay. I said, really? are you, you're serious, aren't you? And he goes, yeah. And I said, man, I, I don't, um, I, I just think American Christianity is, is really weak. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, why is it that we go to other countries and when we minister there? If you if you finish in an hour, they're going, what are you doing? They want more. They're saying, no, give us more. Don't don't stop now. And why is it American Christianity can only handle 20 or 30 minutes? That makes no sense. I mean, do you do that to a to your favorite, you know, football team? You know, you go, oh, man, if they're not if they're not done in 30 minutes, I'm out of here. I'm walking out of the stadium. I don't care what we paid for this thing, this piece of junk, they better be finished in 30 minutes. What are you talking about? If they go into overtime and it's like three hours, you're going, yeah. <laughs> but then here's a preacher Sunday morning, and you know, Pastor Pete. You know, you better be done by third time. What does that show? I mean, I, could you imagine doing that in school? Some of you wish you could do that in school. You know, hey teacher, if you're not done with what you're saying in 30 minutes, then you need to sit down and shut up. <gasps> yes, yeah, say that in college and see how your professor grades you. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just going. What? Like in no other venue but in church? That doesn't make any sense to me. Except it does if you're lost, because lost people are doing this. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he or she know them, they're spiritually discerned. And the natural person, the lost person is saying, get me out of here, and this is too long for me. But why is it that you have some that hear? Why isn't it that within a congregation you can preach and you you can see this? We all as preachers have seen this. You see some who are who are hungry, they're earnest, they're they're looking for more, they're wanting more. And there's some people, it's like, you know, forget it. It's like, you know, you know, maybe I'll open my Bible, maybe. Isn't this God's word? Isn't this? I don't get it. I just, but but I do get it. Not everybody has ears to hear. But Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He says, listen, if you have ears to hear, he's saying, I'm talking to you. Because everyone's sort of hearing it, but not everyone's hearing it, but there are some that do. And this is what's amazing. I remember the night that God gave me ears to hear. Do you remember that night for you? Here I was. I was actually, I was a kid. My dad had got saved when he was 26. It changed our family. We started going to church faithfully. I, I, honestly, I thought I'm going to heaven because my parents are going to heaven, you know? I mean, they're Christians. We're all kind of Christians. It's just kind of how it works, you know, kind of part of the family. But the more I begin to understand the word, I'm going, wait a second. It's not, it's not if my parents, I mean, I, this is an individual choice of will I repent and trust in the Messiah? For, really for, on my account, I mean, I need Christ to save me. And so I'm sitting there and this evangelist, he was preaching the gospel. This guy gets up, he starts preaching the gospel, and he starts talking about sin. And can I tell you, that night I'm like, man, I know I'm a sinner. I do need to be rescued. Not only did he talk about that, he talked about the payment of sin being death. And for the first time, I'm going, whoa! It's like if he doesn't, if God doesn't wash me and take away my, I won't make it. I'm too dirty for heaven. This is a serious problem. And I begin to feel the guilt of God, the conviction, and, I, and God's starting to stir my heart. He starts talking about Christ and what He did on the cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and by time he concluded, I went, I need that. I'm like sitting beside my dad. I tug on his, sh- his, his shirt sleeve and he looks at me and goes, what are you doing? Because he thought I was messing around because that's what I would normally do. And I said, dad, I'm not messing around. I need to be saved. My dad actually in kindness, he, he took me to another room and with a Bible and opened up the Bible and showed me what it meant to repent, to call upon the name of the Lord. That night I I placed my faith, my trust in Christ. And he saved me. It's amazing because as God works in a heart and this idea of preservation, he changes a heart and life. And I went from being a child of darkness to a child of light, a child of the devil to a child of God. It's amazing he gave me new life. It's this the salvation that's in Christ is amazing, grace, isn't it? It's what, what God does. But I look at this and I wonder, maybe you're here tonight and you've never been saved, and yet God has given you ears to hear. If you have ears to hear and you've never responded in real repentance and faith, tonight could be the greatest night for you you could actually repent and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the truth is if you're here tonight and you have and you're surrendering to Christ fully and you are loving Christ supremely and you're actually considering the cost carefully, guess what? Naturally, you know what you are? God has made you to be salt in this world. And think about this. Let your light, it's another metaphor, so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. We live in such a way that we salt the earth. The truth is, is this place, our world, our church should be a better place because Christ is in us and we're there. May God help us be true salt. Let's pray.